So welcome to Scandal.K12.us. Our Scandal K-12 curriculum is a true crime comedy podcast about bamboozling boards, sneaky superintendents, lame learning products, and teachers who are way too cool for school. This curriculum may contain references and potential descriptions of crimes against minors in the field of education. Listener discretion is always advised. And now, students, it is time for morning announcements. Good morning, Scandal K-12 students, home of the fighting rats. Go rats! We're going to stand for another song from the District of Columbia. Take it away. Thanks, Glee Club. You really came through for us there. If you are interested in joining our Glee Club, go over to scandalk12us.com forward slash glee and find out how you can participate in an upcoming episode. We're going to be picking up where we left off with part one, and even though it will be an open book exam at the end, let's do a review. As with other episodes, stop trying to concatenate quarterly reports, set your solver functions to unsupervised learning, and put down the toilet brush, since this is a podcast you need to listen to. Sharpen your pencils, open up your notebooks. So here's an overview of what we have learned so far. If you've not listened to episode one... We recommend you stop now and listen to that one first, but it's not like we can do anything about it, so if you just want to soldier on, that's up to you. In the last episode, we learned that Michelle Ree was inspired to join the Teach for America program, perhaps watching some daytime TV in her dorm room, and between commercials for the Thighmaster and Miss Cleo, someone discussed a new movement in educational reform called Teach for America. Reapplied to the program, and while they are tougher to get into than the Harvard Law School, she got in and became one of the Teach for America fellows. She had joined an elite group that's sort of like the Peace Corps meets Oneida community. Like other members of the elite stormtroopers of education, she was committed to education reform, was anti-union, and pro-charter schools. Instead of sending young, just-graduated students off to foreign countries to dig wells and villages, collect information for the CIA, the Teach for America is a core of well-educated, well-meaning individuals committed to work for a year or two, with inner-city children, but who just receive about eight weeks of training or so in order to prepare them for a classroom experience, because who needs all that learning when you're teaching? And it seems that about that six to eight weeks of training in the summer after college, Ree did go into a very tough elementary school in Baltimore, which happened to have been taken over by a for-profit charter school company, which was testing out its new management as well as curriculum, called Tesseract. After many adventures in the school, Ree coincidentally left the school when the company that managed it was fired by the district. Ree then enrolled in the Kennedy School at Harvard, which is like the School for the Americas, but for North Americans, where one day she had lunch with her old boss, the founder of Teach for America, Wendy Comp. Wendy had a spare nonprofit lying around which she gave to Ree, who started an organization called The New Teacher Project as a spin-off of Teach for America. There, Ree lived the dream in New York City, and she worked to promote something that was very much like Teach for America, in that the organization was a conduit for teachers who loved work-at-will laws and who knew that poverty was just an excuse not to study hard, but sort of different since it had a different name. After running the new teacher project for almost a decade, Ree was plucked from the small-cap nonprofit to head Washington, D.C. school district, a district that only decades prior had been given something close to home rule since, until the 1970s, mayors were appointed, not elected. And let's remember, this is still a territory, not a state, and as they say, taxation without representation. 
So I guess they're all still figuring out how democracy works in the nation's capital. Re-entered her new role with bravado and was determined to take what she had learned managing college-educated idealistic staff and charter school partnerships and use it to reform a district that was not exactly the worst in the nation, but really close to the worst in the nation at the time. Ree was the new cowboy sheriff and, watch out cows, no cow was sacred. Ree fired teachers and principals, closed schools, and made waves as her tough-as-nails approach seemed to improve test scores and allowed new charter schools to spread throughout the district. Michelle Ree was dubbed the, quote, Iron Chancellor by Fast Company, a reference to the ruthless leader of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, who unified Germany out of many disparate states, increased their empire, and created a military-industrial complex which may have led to the rise of Hitler. Yep, we managed to work Goodwin's Law into this episode. So we're going to pick up with that story with money, since money is sort of central to most of what we talk about. Announced by President Barack Obama in 2009, Race to the Top was intended to dump money into the school systems to fix what No Child Left Behind broke. Race to the Top used financial incentives to encourage school change, and to see this change happened quickly. According to the New York Times, the most Times Square-adjacent newspaper, Education Secretary Arne Duncan had, quote, pushed states to develop evaluation and pay models that link teacher ratings to their students' test scores. States that use such models get points that increase their chances of winning part of the department's $3.4 billion Race to the Top grant pool. Win money for your schools? That sounds great. Scratch off three oranges and a daily double, perhaps? Or win points on your application by demonstrating great teachers and leaders or some other criteria? Winning funding is such a strange American strategy when you think about it. Can we win repairs to our local bridges? But a game show approach beats having a national education system based on boring statistics and endless needs assessments focusing spending in areas of improvement or having a nationalized educational plan. The mayor, it seems, had made education a priority only when he took office and after he found out new funding had been announced. According to the source, Fenty never once mentioned taking over the schools when he was running for mayor, but that as soon as he was elected, he was closeted in a long meeting with the federal city council leaders from which he emerged and immediately announced the mayoral takeover of the schools. We don't want to go too far, too deep into D.C. politics, but it's interesting that the federal city council is a nonprofit that works to, quote, improve the District of Columbia and at the time had Graham family ties, the owners of Graham Holdings Company, the owners of Kaplan, as well as the Washington Post. We're not breaking out our red strings and blurry Sasquatch photos to connect the dots just yet, but we're not entirely tossing these craft materials into the trash bin just yet. In a 2008 article in Fast Company that was originally called, quote, The Iron Chancellor, but when accessed in 2020, the online title had changed to the bland, quote, fixing Washington, D.C. school system. So maybe just a comparison to a European leader who may have led to Hitler was, well, just not cool with over a decade of retrospection. Anyway, back in 2008, we had a nation enthralled by the latest Batman film, The Dark Knight, but also reeling from a national tragedy that was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls film. In those heady days, retook the reins of power over the D.C. district, answering only to the mayor. Like 
Otto von Bismarck, she went on the offensive, you could almost say a blitzkrieg at once. Fast Company reporter Jeff Chu was given a tour of the last open-plan school, Dunbar Senior High School, to see for himself what was wrong and what needed to be changed in the district. What he saw, predictably, was, quote, the worst school in one of the worst school districts in D.C. His tour guide was the principal of the school, Harriet Cargbo, and she took him past metal detectors, which she called, quote, the reality they live in. They walked over trash-littered hallways and took stairwells that smelled of marijuana to classrooms that had been cut out of the, quote, open-concept school with makeshift walls of filing cabinets or room dividers or curtains. Two reported that children seemed distracted or idle, which made him understand how, in the five years since No Child Left Behind was an official law, the school never met any of the law's benchmarks. After his tour... Chu learned that the principal and tour guide, Harriet Cargbo, who in just a few short passages was portrayed as a lackey, with the sort of sloth and dismissive bureaucratic laziness typically associated with 19th century colonial depictions of natives who are unable to sustain home rule. Well, she was fired that afternoon and walked out of the school. Fast Company's article then went on for 16 paragraphs to praise Ree and draw upon numbers provided by Ree staffers in the sort of breathless, hypernormal style that the magazine is known for. Not quite neoliberal, not quite libertarian, but very excited about stuff in a manic way that most of us achieve only through the use of controlled substances. And also, just as comparison point of view of Dunbar Senior High School it was put in a much different light in 2004. In an article by the Washington Post reporter Valerie Strauss, who covers the educational beat, she followed the then superintendent of schools, Clifford B. Janey, as he was principal for the day at Dunbar Senior High School. The principal for a day program was something that he had launched to allow him to stay connected to the 150 schools in the system. Harriet Cogbo sadly was out that particular day attending professional development at the district office and... That was okay because Superintendent Janey was the principal for a day. Superintendent Janey, like Ree, also wanted change. However, he went to schools and talked to administrators, teachers, and students. Quote, I believe a large reason for reform and initiatives remaining remote from their well-intended purpose is because they didn't connect with the schools and school communities. Assistant Principal Sean Pelotti, a Dunbar graduate, said that the school had a 90% attendance rate, and while there were issues... They had 65% of students going on to college. When Superintendent Janey spoke to students, most were reserved, telling Strauss later they didn't want to be seen as complainers. But one student did tell the superintendent, quote, that open space schools such as Dunbar, built during the 1970s under a now-discarded philosophy that classrooms did not need walls. We'll handle that in a future episode. Anyway, the student tells the superintendent, quote, classes are not a good learning environment because there are a lot of distractions, which is, of course, very understandable, because your walls are made out of filing cabinets. But in 2008, the distractions and excuses at the school had to stop, and we felt the best way to do this was to have Dr. Harriet Cargbo frog-walked out of the school at the end of her guided tour of the Fast Company reporter. Re was sending a clear message. Ineffective principals, teachers, and staff were on burn notice. Whatever they had been doing to fight systemic poverty, racism, inequality, and the drug issues in the community was just not enough, and the proverbial slate had to be wiped clean for new leaders and fresh ideas. Now, this was a bold move, and one that over time would show to be perhaps a quick fix that had longer-lasting impacts, and 
probably not the impact that they were hoping for, because, spoiler alert, Dr. Harriet F. Cargbo, because like Dr. Jill Biden, and while not mentioned in the Fast Company article, Dr. Cargbo has a doctorate in education and should be called a doctor, as should most of the other 16 plaintiffs who won a 2017 class action lawsuit against the District of Columbia for wrongful termination and racial discrimination, claiming in the lawsuit that, quote, the school system engaged in public distortions which caused the plaintiffs to be perceived as pariahs, troublemakers, and lazy, ineffective administrators. A 2017 district press release on the case seems to admit that these individuals had been wronged and, as we know, wronged by Ree, and that, quote, individuals collectively devoted many decades of their lives to educating the children of the District of Columbia and serving as leaders of the district schools. Oh, and they also gave the former principals $85 million in a settlement after an almost 10-year-long litigation. Dr. Cargbo is actually today a professor at a small college, so I guess they moved on to better things. But let's not just skip to the present day just yet. There's a lot of ground to cover, and that brings us to where we are today. Well, today back then. So along with canning bad teachers and removing principals, we took aim at, quote, underutilized schools in order to tame the behemoth that was DCPS. True, idle schools do come at a cost. They're staffing, maintenance, light, heat. To save money and streamline the district, recreated a list of schools to close down in certain communities. Oh, and spoiler alert, quote, certain communities are whisper words for black communities. It seems that the schools on the list were in predominantly black areas of the city rather than white areas. For example, in Ward 5, a majority African-American community, seven schools were targeted for closure, while in the predominantly white Ward 3, no schools were on the list, according to an article in Ed Week. But these were just facts and figures. It was time to get the community to buy in, so Ree went on the charm offense. She attended black churches, passed out literature at block parties, and made herself very visible. Sadly, this relationship building didn't make the community meetings any less raucous. At one of those parent-educator auditorium meetings, you know, the ones where everyone has a Frankenstein rake and a torch and they're all yelling and banging on gavels or pots and pans, Ree told the audience, quote, this is the beginning of the process. And the process was to target and close schools. Even if she had to do a little bit of explaining, none of her explanations ever panned out to give people a clear understanding of just why particular schools were selected. Ricky Hunt-Taylor, then a reinstalled principal of the Tacoma Education Center, a school just south of the Maryland border outside of Silver Springs, and inexplicably quoted in the 2008 Fast Company article, formerly known as the Iron Superintendent, she said, quote, Economically, it makes no sense to have a school built for 500 kids with 100 kids in it. But emotionally, it's tough to shut down a school. Now, Principal Taylor was, at the time of the article, not experienced in school facility utilization, and no other experts were quoted in the article, and it seems that, well, experts are for losers anyway. According to media sources, there was no public plan for short- or long-term use of real estate owned or managed by DCPS or clear metrics for school closure. Nothing was clear. It was a fog. According to DCist, an online publication of WAMU 88.5 America University Radio, because where else are you going to listen to the BBC World Service at 3 a.m.? The list of schools changed and was revised and didn't have a, quote, clearly defined rationale as to the benefits of student achievement or community needs. And we all know clearly defined rationale is a whisper word on public radio for they don't know what the fuck is going on. 
Nevertheless, after a lot of wrangling and back and forth, Rhee winnowed down the list from the many, many schools she wanted to just 23 schools throughout D.C. One claim Rhee made, according to another article in the Washington Post, was to, quote, keep most of the vacated buildings under DCPS control, finding community use until enrollment rebounds to reopen them. She said some of the buildings would be rented to charter schools, accelerating the growth of the publicly funded but independently run schools. Since if there was not enough students for a public school, where did all these charter school students come from? But anyway, that's math. By 2012, a report showed that students from schools re had closed were twice as likely to enroll in public charter schools, quote, leading to a loss of enrollment that cost the school system about $5 million in 2009, according to a study by three think tanks. Three think tanks. Three think tanks. What a terrible line. Anyway, if the closures weren't so ham-fisted and the messaging so clumsy, the plan to close schools, shift students to charters, and open up new charters in DCPS properties is an almost brilliantly clever way to both work for public education and work to undermine public education at once. But firing teachers, firing district staff, cleaning house and frog-walking principals out of the buildings, closing schools, these were just a move towards a more central mission that is to serve and educate the children of D.C., to improve their test scores, which are an indicator of academic ability. And that is where the miracle occurred. D.C. students, with Rhee at the helm, despite all of the things that had happened, well, she managed to get the district to rise up from the bottom with the Washington Examiner, the conservative source Americans deserve, exclaiming that, quote, D.C. public schools are no longer the worst in the nation, according to standardized test scores released comparing large urban districts. We are no longer last, so that is good news, said Chancellor Rhee. According to the same news outlet, quote, the school system's Hispanic students saw the greatest improvements, with 4th graders gaining 8 points and 8th graders jumping 15 points since 2007. This was the largest gain in the nation. Indeed, education reform had come to D.C. and this city territory could serve as a model for quote, urban students across the land, which we know is a word for black and brown kids. Nevertheless, while the 2008 scores showed improvement with Rhea at the helm, by early 2009, a confidential memo was issued, one that would not come to light until 2013, that auditors suspected, quote, that educator cheating on 2008 standardized tests could have been widespread, with 191 teachers in 70 schools, quote, implicated in possible testing infractions. The scores seemed to improve in 2009, and by 2010, outlets across the nation supportive of Rhee called for tenure reform and replicating the miracle. The Wall Street Journal in 2010 praised Rhee for fixing D.C. schools. According to Roger Garfield, writing for Mother Jones, a one-time progressive publication that had a grudge fuck hard-on to prevent Bernie Sanders from being president, Rhee was polarizing, but ultimately a change agent. Quote, every summer, Rhee welcomes hundreds of first-year teachers to the district, mostly mid-20s men and women, joining DCPS through all certification programs like Teach for America and DC Teaching Fellows. They replace the people she has fired. The new teachers, some fresh out of undergrad or career changers, participate in intense summer training sessions and assist veteran summer school teachers around the city. They assume their spots at the front of the classroom every August, usually in the neediest of the city's 150-plus public schools. And when we're speaking of fresh faces, we should look to the writer, Mr. Garfield, because according to his LinkedIn profile, he did work two years in the tough D.C. schools under Rhee before switching to work at a high-tuition, majority-majority private religious college preparatory boarding school in a very fancy, chauncey neighborhood just a little west of Washington, D.C. 
so certainly those fresh faces were there, at least there for one or two years. And it seems like Fresh Faces is what Teach for America does. Fresh Faces were doing more than just teaching. Some of them were raising test scores the old-fashioned way. That is, erasing wrong answers for students and putting in the right answers. It turns out when teachers are paid for performance, bad things can happen. And these bad things were examined by the National Center for Fair and Open Testing in a 2009 research paper, Paying for Higher Test Scores Results in Score Inflation, Not Genuine Learning, which is certainly the most this is my thesis in a title of any research paper that we know of. In the paper, researchers extensively documented test score inflation under the widely criticized No Child Left Behind, or Nickleby, and similar state programs. The paper found that it was little surprise that what one thought would be an issue only at one D.C. school actually applied to many of them. As this story was trickling out, re hit back. She appeared on the now Me Too Tavis Smiley show, where she claimed, quote, when the academic achievement rates of a district like D.C. go up, People assume that it can't be, because the kids are actually attaining higher gains in student achievement, but that it's because of something like cheating. But it turns out that it wasn't something like cheating at all. It was something exactly like cheating. In a 2011 article in the Hershinger Report by No Byline, we, we guess No Byline is a cousin of Via Getty. Anyway, in this article, it claimed in a 2011 investigation based on documents and data secured under D.C.'s Freedom of Information Act, they found that for the past three years, schools in many classrooms, and one in particular, had, quote, extraordinarily high numbers of erasures on standardized tests. The constant pattern was that wrong answers were erased and changed to right ones. Well, fancy that. The pattern extended to, quote, 103 public schools here that have had erasure rates that surpassed D.C. averages. According to the report, quote, erasures are detected by the same electronic scanners that McGraw-Hill, D.C.'s testing company, uses to score the test. When test takers change answers, they erase penciled-in bubble marks that leave a little smudge behind. The machines tally the erasures, as well as the new answers for each student. This tracking of erasures is common for any vendor that provides standardized tests using paper tracking. One school that was pointed out in particular by the investigation was Crosby S. Noyes Education Campus, a school that serves grades 3 to 5. What was put front and used by Rhee as a flagship example of her turnaround, so much so that the school won a national blue ribbon from the U.S. Department of Education for its achievement in pushing up student scores in the school. However, according to the USA Today report, in 2007 and 8, six classrooms out of the eight in Crosby S. Noyes Education Campus were flagged by McGraw-Hill because of high wrong-to-right erasure rates. The pattern was repeated in 2008-2009 and 2009-2010 school years when 80% of noise classrooms were flagged by McGraw-Hill. A parent of a noise student who was interviewed for another article claimed that while his daughter scored high in math, she continued to struggle throughout high school with what he calls, quote, the basics. He wondered how his daughter had done so well on tests and yet struggles with schoolwork. Along with school awards, rising scores had also led to actual money for DCPS. DC won money. DC won an extra $75 million to be used for public and public charter schools despite, quote, erasure rates found at noise and at other DC public schools that are so statistically rare and yet showed up in so many classrooms that they should be examined thoroughly. The odds of right-to-wrong answer erasures per student are, as a whole, better than winning the Powerball grand prize than having that many erasures according to Thomas Haladna, a professor emeritus at Arizona State University who had studied testing for over 20 years. 
During Wee's tenure, only one teacher actually was fired for manipulating tests, but she did punish principals for not improving scores. Along with the 40 or so principals she canned early on, in her three years as chancellor, she appointed 91 principals, and 39 of whom no longer held those jobs in August 2010, meaning the school leadership was changing frequently and the drive to raise scores may be broadcast down the chain of command. Quote, this is like an education Ponzi scam, says Nathan Saunders, head of the Washington Teachers Union. If your test scores improve, you make more money. If not, you get fired. That's incredibly dangerous. Close quote. According to Edweek, this wild endeavor was doomed at the onset since it focused too much on teachers as a change agent and pressured them to deliver when they were themselves set up to fail. Time and again, teachers are not the primary reason for a disparagence and achievement between students in wealthy versus poor schools. Poverty itself is the culprit and will do no good to, quote, hold teachers accountable for things beyond their control, according to the article in Edweek. Three years is a long time for a school reformer. A lot can be done and undone by one's actions and words. In 2010, Ree gave an interview to Fast Company, which appears to have been removed from the magazine's online version and perhaps inspired the elaginous publication to rename their 2008 article to something less controversial than a reference to a leader who may or may not have led to, uh, well, basically Hitler. Now, remember, when your sources are online and memory is digital, there are no historical records, only updates and hotfixes. So, in this particular comment to Fast Company, when Ree was asked about laying off teachers and how using budgetary constriction as a reason fell outside of union rules, she said to the publication she, quote, got rid of teachers who had hit children, who had sex with children, who had missed 78 days of school. Why wouldn't we take those things into consideration? In the words of uh, middle school students everywhere, Oh, no, you didn't. You didn't just say that. Or in a 2010 headline from Washington City Paper, shortly after Ree's remarks were made to public and fast company, quote, why Michelle Ree needs to explain her sex with children claim. At a press conference, the head of the teachers union called the allegation specious character assassination of almost 300 former staff who have no recourse to refute unfounded allegations. Also, it was strange that these allegations came years after the termination of the educator, since knowledge of abuse or neglect as an educator has to be reported, which is why educators are called mandatory reporters, and failure to report can lead to child abuse misdemeanor charges, punishable by a fine or up to 90 days in jail. After what people in the executive class call pushback, re-walked back her comments, claiming that they were made in the distant past. They were just some strange comment that came through time right out of some Outer Limits knockoff of a Twilight Zone knockoff of a Lovecraft story. Nevertheless, according to the blog, The Washington Teacher, quote, it looks like Rhea is having one too many bipolar moments and seems to be unable to keep up with what she previously reported on TV news stations, in print media, as well as before the D.C. City Council under oath. Another commentator on the blog, Sheila H. Gill, said, quote, to my fired colleague, Please don't fall for the foolishness and retain an attorney for slander slash defamation of character. Focus on the real question in Google. What was Michelle Rhee's damage control for Kevin Johnson? What? Did we learn something from a comment on an article? And who is Kevin Johnson? Okay, students, it's time for a side quest. Attention, students. Attention, students. This next segment may not be suitable for all audiences, as there are descriptions of sexual assault. Please be advised. 
So we're going to take a sideline to Ree's personal life. In 2007, Ree left the new teacher project, and she left her husband. Ree bounced back quickly, taking up a relationship with a fellow school reformer and former NBA player, Kevin Johnson. Johnson was running an organization in Sacramento called St. Hope Academy. It seems that Johnson was under investigation for misuse of AmeriCorps funds. One of the investigators was the Inspector General of the AmeriCorps, whose entire job was to inspect things for AmeriCorps. And this IG found more than fraud. He found a pink slip given to him by the Obama administration since the investigation caused as much stir in D.C. as it did in Sacramento. So while Johnson was being investigated for misuse of federal funds, it turns out that allegations by more than one young AmeriCorps staffer at St. Hope spoke of unwanted sexual advances and touching by Johnson. According to a former St. Hope staffer, who later resigned due to the organization's mishandling of the sexual harassment case, Ree went into full damage control on Johnson's behalf. Quote, Ree made it her number one priority, and she would take care of the situation personally. It also turned out that the incidence of misconduct towards college-age AmeriCorps female staff members was not the first allegation, as Johnson's, quote, alleged predatory behavior with teenage girls seems to be an ongoing pattern, according to Creators, a blog by Michelle Malkin, a host of a conservative news source called Newsmax. Oh, oh God, did we just quote Newsmax? Well, aside from Newsmax... During the time Ree was in D.C., the allegations against Johnson were buried as federal attorneys declined to pursue charges for financial or any of the personal impropriety, and reports of the sexual assaults were ignored by the Sacramento police. However, this story has a happy ending, because as soon as Ree was no longer embedded in D.C. politics, more allegations against Johnson came out, as well as many that were formerly shelved. In 2015, the Matt Lauer-loving Brian Gumbel interviewed Mandy Koba, who had come forward with a video of her in 1996 in a police interview in which the then 17-year-old victim graphically described repeated sexual molestation by Johnson. In addition to this, the Sacramento News and Review released an investigative report of how Johnson, who is now Mayor Johnson, was, quote, using city staff to screw around with the internal politics of the National Basketball Players Association, having public employees help wage his power struggle for control of the National Conference of Black Mayors. 2016 was even better for Johnson, who was now married to Ree, when HBO Real Sports interviewed three additional women, bringing the total to five he may have molested as a sportball player and not including those allegations by the former AmeriCorps members since they were long tossed or withdrawn when the report was shelved by the next AmeriCorps AG, Jackie Norris, former chief of staff to Michelle Obama. Thus ends the side quest. Wasn't that fun, students? As you can see, if you believe in yourself and support the right political machine at the right political time, you can do anything you want. Yet, Ree stuck by her man the same way she stuck by her allegations about teacher misconduct, even though there was no documentation to back this claim up. Ree's trouble was also growing since her sponsor, her mentor, and her political shield, Mayor Adrian Fenty, had lost a Democratic nomination to the office, and it was said that when she left, the mob would be coming for Ree. And leading that mob of parents, administrators, teachers, advocates, school staff were local council members and the head of the D.C. Teachers Union. Marion Barry, Democrat council member of Ward 8 and two-time mayor of D.C. and one-time arrested crackhead who served time in prison, said of Ree's disrespectful statement that it was particularly offensive to black people as the majority of the teachers were black. Barry said, quote, We're not going to take Ree's disrespect lying down. We're going to fight to the end, and that's why I want Michelle Ree to stay here so she can suffer the consequences of her own actions. 
If she leaves, she's gone. We can't hold her accountable. I want to hold her accountable. And this piece of truth comes from a recovering crackhead. You know you're really bad when a former crackhead can call you out on your shit and speak truth to power. But sadly, stay and be accountable wasn't on Ree's agenda. Late in 2010, Ree tended her resignation. The controversy, it turns out, weighed heavily on her patron, the mayor, and she is actually credited with sinking his political campaign and political career. With the mayor gone, the mob of angry people coming ever closer, it was a good time to get out of Dodge, currently. At her resignation speech, she assured everyone that she would be, quote, fine, but she said it was going to be, quote, devastating for the school children of Washington, D.C. As she left her office for the last time, throngs of children lined up waving flags and thanking her for their improved test scores. Parents gave her flowers. Teachers from top colleges flocked to the sign-up for careers teaching in the inner city. And, as you guessed it, none of this ever happened, since she was generally hated by everyone, it seems. And as we know, the media can giveth celebrity, it can also dump scorn and removeth that celebrity. The Atlantic called Rhea Lightning Rod and discussed her as quote-unquote controversial or quote-unquote polarizing in her activities in the district. However, the New Republic took a less quote-unquote terrible view in the article that was titled How Michelle Rhee Misled Education Reform. While Fast Company, the magazine which had published her quote-unquote controversial allegations, ran yet another laudatory story at the time. This one was titled, Michelle Rhee Wants to Spend One Billion Fixing Education. But on a different planet, in perhaps the same universe, the New Republic's article examined Rhee's many missteps and her broken agenda and didn't have what we would call a very good, well, positive job performance review. We would say that, according to that article, she was minimally effective. But her failure seemed to be a matter of opinion to many. I mean... Who does a bad job? What does a bad job really mean? While many mortals would be set back by so much as missing a deadline on an RFP, Ree's highly visible set of failures didn't seem to matter. She was still the Iron Chancellor to some, and after leaving D.C., claims have been wooed by such notable Me Too candidates as Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Governor Chris Christie, as well as by private sector suitors who she claims were offering up to $1 million a year to fix stuff. While being interviewed by alleged sexual predator and perhaps journalist Charlie Rose, Ree claims to have had an epiphany, one that would have a return to education for another go at reforming. After the interview, she says she flew to Sacramento and met with her now husband and still alleged sexual predator, Kevin Johnson. By the end of the dinner, the two had outlined an organization that would, quote, throw huge amounts of money behind a brand of reform that Ree had long advocated and which, and we're quoting here, would not be a charity but a a political advocacy and membership group along the lines of the AARP or the NRA, which are certainly not organizations where one of them prevents Medicaid for all while the other prevents any modicum of gun ownership reform and allows an endless supply of illegal guns in the hands of the mentally ill that leads to mass shootings on such a regular basis we now have active shooter drills in schools across the nation. But reimagined, what if there was an organization that blended those two, like a N-R-A-A-R-P, but for education. Not a month after she resigned, re-announced on Oprah that she would, quote, not work for anyone else. Instead, she was going to start an organization called Students First. Oprah was like, you get a public charter school, and you get a public charter school, and you get a public charter school. 
The organization as Students First was a comeback tour. Ree went to some old friends to help fund her new venture, including the Eli and Edith Broad Foundation, and gathered together a strong board of directors, including Joel Klein, former head of New York City Schools, and Bill Cosby, former comedian and convicted felon of three counts of aggravated indecent assault. Ree was now ready to do to the country what she did to D.C., in a 2013 op-ed by the former president of Learning Matters and longtime reporter for NPR's Education Beat, said of Ree that what she did in D.C. was create mistrust between the community and the school district, close needed schools and increase charter enrollment to the detriment of the school budgets, undermine trust in school tests, leave behind several costly employment lawsuits, one of which cost D.C. almost a million dollars much later, and she created a revolving door within leadership since long-time principals were fired or pressured out and replaced with rookies who used their position only as a stepping stone. This was a loss of half of the new teachers by 2013 and the further attrition rate of 25% per year since. Her legacy, according to the article, also was an increase in student expenditure by several thousand dollars per student per year, an increase in central office personnel and bureaucracy, as well as an increase in salaries above $100,000 among a core of those staff. This seems to have led to an increase in truancy and a drop in student test scores. We guess now that rebots weren't erasing wrong answers. Test scores went down. Three years after creating Students First, Re resigned suddenly in order to, quote, focus on my family and supporting my husband, close quote, which is typically a statement reserved for powerful men who have placed their penises into some very questionable areas, nice to see her break that barrier. But don't worry, Ree didn't disappear into that great night. Soon after tending to her family's garden, she took up a new hobby and became a board member of the Ohio-based Scott's miracle Grow Company, a company that makes lawn gardens and potentially cancerous chemicals. In addition to serving on the board, Ree was appointed to serve on two of Scott's miracle Grow's board committees, Innovation Marketing and Compensation Organization. We think that working for a company that in 2012 was fined $4.5 million for knowingly selling birdseed laden with chemicals that killed millions of birds, that, yep, this is exactly the right place for Michelle Ree to end up. To quote former President George Bush after the 2016 inaugural address, that was some weird sh**. We have to admit it is hard to find unbiased information for Michelle Ree because it was either highly managed by her sycophants, manipulated by supporters of educational reform movement, or doctored by charter school proponents who were overfawning press releases written by tech bros who wanted a video game hero to come to life and defeat the bad guys. Her detractors were many, and while one can argue that with strong change comes strong opposition, the lasting legacy of her activity seems to be a school system and a public school student body that has not improved and continues to suffer those same struggles as they have for generations. Now, one thing we can report on is that the city of D.C. has improved. Gentrification has now turned a lot of those formerly bad neighborhoods into area oases of million-dollar condos and boutique children's educational programs and centers. A lot of poor families have moved out and have taken their poverty with them. While education helps to get an individual out of poverty and schools are central, social issues and poverty issues require a lot more complicated and community-wide approach. To quote former Superintendent Janie, quote, I believe a large reason of reforms and initiatives remaining remote from their well-intended purpose is because they didn't connect with the schools and the school communities. Ree was an inexperienced outsider with dogmatic ideas on what education reform should look like. She promoted this singular idea. Nothing was up for discussion. 
In the popular press, the focus was on her passion for reform, sort of a cult of personality, but many publications overlooked her hubris and her poor track record. They used terms like polarization and controversial to dismiss critics until the evidence was overwhelming, upon which they applied the 2020 as hindsight that the Fourth Estate is so adept at using. This story reminds us about a much larger reformer who failed in D.C. A presidential candidate who didn't talk like a politician or have any experience in governance or complex policy, who was given the chance to make America great again, then went on to become the worst president in U.S. history. As a postscript, we heard chatter that Rhee is again entering the field of education, but perhaps her next tour will be more of a tribute band than a comeback to No Child Left Behind. We're not sure she'll ever recapture the America's heart or rejoin the current national conversation on education. But depending on her activity and her success among donors, there may yet to be a part three to this story. And that, students, is our story on Michelle Rhee. And now, time for one final story. As we said, what would schools be without students? One D.C. student was charged with killing four people in a string of shooting in Washington, D.C., the 16-year-old was charged with four murders and a gang-related shooting spree that also injured five others between April and May. According to NBCNews.com, the student is suspected of a total of nine shootings between April and May of 2020 and faces four counts of first-degree murder while armed, four counts of assault with intent to kill while armed, assault with intent to commit murder while armed, and assault with a dangerous weapon. Previous to this arrest, the teen had been released from custody for unknown offenses March 29th, and he had cut off his ankle monitor before the violence, authorities said in arrest warrant affidavits. Witnesses identified the teen in part based on his Instagram presence, saying he was affiliated with a gang, Spring City, that had a rivalry with nearby neighborhood gangs named for 37th Street in southeast Washington, D.C., also, according to affidavits from the Metropolitan Police. In addition to the shootings, why not make a little bit of cash on the side? He was also attempting to sell a forty caliber gun on social media after one of the slayings. Probably Facebook Marketplace isn't the best place to sell your old murder guns. Anyway, this student will be tried as an adult in the District of Columbia for those crimes. Indeed, D.C. continues to be a very dangerous place to live and teach. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners, our subscribers, our supporters on Patreon. We would love you to give us a review, let us know what you've heard, or send an angry email to scandalk12us at gmail.com. You can also join our Glee Club. For information on that, go to scandalk12us.com forward slash Glee. If you don't have time to go to our website, you can just dial our number. 518-945-8553 and leave a voicemail. Don't forget to include your name or the name you want us to use, the state or the title of the school-related song, then sing about as much as you can of it, 15, 20 seconds or so, and we'll look into using it. As always, we thank all of our journalists, whether they're citizen media journalists or professional journalists, do support our fourth estate. It helps contribute to democracy and continuing our ongoing conversation in society. We use publicly available sources, but these sources also include citizen media. Citizen media in recent months has come under scrutiny because a lot of facts might be just opinion. Right now we don't have a fact checker. The citizen journalists that we do rely upon have a large social presence on media. They often have a LinkedIn page or have articles that they've written for other sources with mastheads, that is, places with editors. We'll put everything in the show notes and, of course, along with our journalists that we rely upon, 
We also rely upon freesound.org to provide a soundscape for this and other episodes. As always, credits will be listed on the website. And do reach out to us if we miss you. ScandalK12US at gmail.com. We're getting a little bit better at giving our credits, so it's a learning process. It's iterative. Bear with us. As always, Freesound allows us to add that soundscape, keep them in your thoughts and prayers, or perhaps donate to the cause. You can donate money or a sound. Remember as we say, tell us and we forget, teach us and we remember, screw us over, and you're on scandal.k12.us. Class dismissed.